Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining me here on the Bare Bones Yoga Podcast, Conversations for Yoga Teachers. My name is Karen Fabian. I'm the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm a yoga teacher and educator, and my goal here is to provide you, the yoga teacher, and other listeners with interesting, compelling content designed to pique your interest in teaching help you grow as a teacher, and support you on your path to sharing this wonderful practice with your students. I've been teaching for over 14 years, and through my classes, workshops, online courses, books, and other content, I focus on the anatomy of yoga and how teachers can learn this complex subject and present it to their students in an understandable way, all designed to help them bring more impact to their teaching. Even though we're not in the same room, I want you to envision for each episode that we've sat down for tea in a cozy coffee shop. Some days we'll talk about technical teaching topics, while some days we might have a teacher friend join in on the conversation, and other days we'll face some of the personal challenges that can come up when we take on the journey of being a teacher, knowing that the more authentic we can be, the more we can impact others. For more information about my products and programs and to contact me at any time, just visit my website at barebonesyoga.com. Let's get into today's episode. Hi, everybody. I hope you're having an amazing day, whatever it is that you are doing right now. Uh, Actually, I know what you're doing. You're tuning into the podcast. So thank you so very much. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 28. In some of my past episodes, I reviewed cues for different yoga poses to give you a sense of both the anatomy and the physical action cues you might share. Now, if you missed those, they were episodes 17, 18, and 19. So I'm back today to run through four more poses that actually fall on the more challenging side of things versus some of the other episodes that covered more fundamental poses. And let me just add, if you missed those earlier episodes, the easiest way to listen is to go to the website, barebonesyoga.com. The podcast page is linked right off the homepage and you can just look those up. If you're listening on iTunes or Podbean, you can just scroll back to them. Now, because we're going to do, I guess, what you could consider more challenging poses in today's book review, I want you to keep in mind the idea that what's challenging to one person is not the same thing to another. So things are always relative. Plus, it's not my intention to suggest that you add these poses to your teaching, only that we have a chance to discuss them to see how we might teach them. Let me also add that in the case of one of the poses I'm going to review, shoulder stand, I actually didn't teach it for many years. I was afraid that students would injure their neck or injure their shoulders. And this concern didn't come from my inability to teach it, but more my experience that students just fling themselves up and into the pose which is exactly what I want them to avoid when it comes to uh, not getting hurt. And I hadn't figured out a way to hold them back enough so I could give them the cues before they pop up. 
Now, I figured out now how to do that, and it's nothing really complicated. We'll get into that when I get to that particular pose breakdown. But I've also kind of, I guess you could say, loosened somewhat my concerns around holding the reins so tightly. And this was a little bit of a transition for me as I really shifted my focus to the anatomy. I, I have to admit, I became a little bit obsessive about focusing on the anatomy to the exclusion of flow, of freedom. And so now I found a really, what I feel is a really nice balance in between both. And part of that is coaching your students through the postures and also allowing them room to make mistakes and having confidence that the cues you're giving are correct, anatomically correct, and that you're giving them just what they need to know to decrease the risk of injury. But then at that point, you just let them be free. Now, I'm recording this episode on July 12th, 2019, and starting next week, I'm going to be offering a totally free video training on anatomy. And I'm only releasing this to my VIP mailing list. It's not going on social media. So this training will cover many of the fundamentals of shoulder anatomy. So it is so applicable to teaching. If you're wondering what the shoulders do in different poses, are looking for easy ways to understand the muscles at work, all in an effort to give better and correct cues, you must be in on this training. Now, as I said, it's not on social media and will only be released to those on my VIP mailing list. You'll get three videos all next week and all leading up to a huge surprise the following week. So that's just a little sneak peek at where this is all headed. So to register for this training, I'm going to include a link in the show notes today. And the show notes are what I consider if you link to this episode on my website, the post itself that has the link to the episode also includes a couple other links. So there will be a uh, link to the registration page for this free training. But another thing is, if you're already on my VIP mailing list because you've downloaded something I've already given out as a piece of free content, you're already on the list. You don't have to do anything. Another way to get on the VIP mailing list is to go to my website, barebonesyoga.com, and take a look at some of the free tools I have for teachers. One of my most popular tools and something that's downloaded almost 100% of the time that people visit, I think the download rate is something like 88%, is my sequence building template. And that's right on the homepage about halfway down. So any of the things that you uh, grab that I offer in terms of free content, in order for me to give it to you, I have to ask you for your email. Once your uh, email is on my mailing list, you're on that VIP list. So don't forget that training kicks off next week. So over the next couple days, uh, go ahead and get on the list. If you get on the list at some point next week, that's okay too, because the videos will go out throughout the week. Now, a few things I want to cover before I get into the examples. I mentioned these last time and I want to reiterate it, especially if you missed, missed those earlier episodes. Now, the first thing is I am not saying that my cues are right and the only way that you should articulate the practice. 
My cues are just a suggestion and an attempt to start a conversation or at least a thought process in your mind as to what is the most effective way to help people move on the mat. Now, the second thing is this. You might wonder, well, how am I supposed to know if my cues are working? It's not like the students are talking to me, telling me if they're confused. I get it. That is a conundrum of sorts and one of the challenges of teaching. The students aren't saying anything. It's a one-way conversation. And if you're the only one talking, what can you do? Well, as you're teaching, watch your students. It sounds kind of obvious, but that's really what it's about. The best barometer regarding your cues is right in front of you. Are they doing what you suggest? Or maybe not. Do they look confused, distracted? There is a ton you can discern simply by looking at them. If you're lucky, a few people will give you some feedback after class. And this can really be helpful because it will help you get real-time feedback about the cues you give, plus it will give you a chance to ask them some questions too. But many times, one of the most powerful things you can feel as a teacher is the connection with a student because something you say creates a specific action in their body that you believe will help give them greater steadiness and integrity in the pose. And you will only experience this if you're watching them. Now, let me also add one more thing. For whatever reason, less so with side plank that I'm gonna be talking about and its variations, and more with the other three poses I'm going to review, there seems to be a trend in teaching where teachers say, if this pose is something you'd like to try, go ahead. Or if it's in your practice, go ahead. Now, I'd like to gently suggest that if you are going to offer one of these poses, especially because they are more challenging than others, please teach the pose. For many of your students, it's not in their practice. And as one private student said to me recently, I'd sure like it to be, but no one will teach me. I heard that and it really made me sad because there was a lost opportunity there. The spirit of that statement, I think, is that we don't want to pressure people to do anything. Now, let me share with you. They won't do it if they don't want to. Have you ever noticed how many students don't do crow when you offer it? I actually used to have a student who literally every time I taught it, she went to the bathroom, like every time. Now, she was highly distractible, but come on. So if that's your concern, and it's a good concern, teach them ways to modify it or teach them alternatives like not lifting their feet off the floor or just finding the general shape. We're gonna get into that more later, but I hope you get what I mean. Our role is to teach and we should own that 100%. So let's go through the poses here. Now, as we go through these, I'm going to focus on the cues, but there are, of course, other things to review for each pose also. Let's break down what we should look at in order to get a good overall sense of the pose. So we should look at the primary action, why are we doing it, the key actions, the key muscles in action, the joints in action, anything that might be a modification or reason not to do it, things to look for as a teacher or like anatomy challenges, and then we should add a little sprinkling of speaking to mind, body, and spirit. 
Now, let me also say, there are different kinds of cues we can give. So we could give action cues, which is usually focused on what you're doing, what you're asking them to do, a one or two word action. Really understandable. We um, could give alignment cues, which talks to the shape of the pose, right? If we say knee over heel or um, stack your shoulders over your hips. We could give anatomical cues, which bring in the actual anatomy, right? Or we could bring in feeling-based cues, which typically are found in more restorative classes, although you might find them in general classes. And in fact, I'm not talking feeling-based cues that are really hard to understand. I'm talking just basic inquiry questions like, how do you feel in this pose? How does this pose feel in your body? Is your body sending you any feedback right now? Anything that you can say that helps the students balance out the physicality of the practice with the more somatic sensation aspect of it. So let's get into the poses. Let's start with crow, okay? So let's first look at crow. So let's go back to our checklist. So the primary action of crow, what kind of, what kind of pose is crow? Crow is a balancing posture. Crow is also a um, arm balance, right? So in terms of the type of balance. And because it's an arm balance, it's a great way to strengthen your arms or really your shoulders, right? Not in isolation, of course, muscles in the arms as well. Um, although it's really a, a good way to strengthen your shoulders. And when you think about the practice in general, being very focused on flow, you know, quote unquote vinyasa, there's a lot of dynamic movement. So here's an opportunity for us to teach students how to stabilize their shoulders, right? So think about the difference between plank and moving from high to low push up, up dog, down dog. Plank is really steadying. Plank is really focused on strength. Plank is really focused on stabilizing the shoulders versus that little transitional sequence is focused on freedom, is focused on movement, is focused on, you know, it's just a lot of flexibility. So we always want to offer things that give people a chance to balance, balance out between the two uh, dynamics. So Crow's a great one for that. So the key actions of crow, right? So I always find it interesting when I talk about um, postures on the podcast because, you know, all you can do is listen, right? I mean, hopefully you've tried this in your own practice. So as I'm describing it, you have some well of physical experience to draw on. Even if you don't, I hope that the conversations I go through will help you start to see in your mind's eye as I describe it. Uh, the posture itself. So the key actions in crow, right? So if we think about someone being in a squat, a really low squat, right? So their hips are uh, open in external rotation, both hips. Let's say they are sitting really low. Maybe their heels are supported by something. Hands are at their heart. So that's a good place to prep them from because as they press their palms together and press their elbows and triceps against the legs, they're already starting to build some of the fundamental pieces of crow. They're connecting their arms to their legs. They're kind of completing the circle, so to speak. It isn't a really wide open pose like triangle. It's a really kind of closed in posture where things are hugging in 
to the center line and pressing, right? There's a lot of pressing in Crow. So here, as you have students, uh, this is one way to get into it, prepare for Crow. You're talking to them in their low squat about that touch point uh, between their arms and their legs. And then as you lean them forward and forward and have them place their hands on the ground, it's important right away to cue them to start to press away from the ground. The obvious way to go would be to collapse towards the ground and the inevitable problem is that you fall on your face. So it seems obvious when we talk about it, but students won't know to not collapse unless you give them something else to do. And then the something else, the press away, of course is obvious and becomes easier for them to connect to. The next important thing, so key actions, press away from the floor, is to hug the elbows in. Without the elbows hugging in, as the elbows widen, the shoulder blades elevate. And when the shoulder blades elevate, we start to activate muscles like the levator scapula and the upper trapezius to literally elevate, levitate, <laughs> The scapula, right? And we wouldn't want people to do that there, just like we wouldn't want them to do it in low push-up. So they need to counteract the elevation of their shoulder blades by triggering another muscle. And the other muscle is the serratus anterior. Again, something that you see used in low push-up. So the serratus anterior with its origin and insertion between the ribs and the medial aspect of the scapula literally draws the scapula closer to the back. So it counteracts the effect of the upper traps and the levator scapula to lift them and keeps them hugged onto the back so they don't lift up and you know, give the student a sense of hunching in the posture. So let's go back. So we said arms are against legs in the squat. They're going to lean forward. They're going to press away from the floor as their palms touch the ground. They're going to hug their elbows in, which is going to trigger serratus and counteract the effects of uh, uh, levator scapula and um, upper traps to elevate the shoulder blades. Now, the next thing they have to do is they have to do something around core action to get that sense of buoyancy away from the floor or buoyancy as in taking flight. So if you think of the name of the pose, crow, right? A bird, right? So to take flight, they've got to create buoyancy. So one of the things they can do to create buoyancy is to activate the rectus abdominis, draw the belly button into the spine. This muscle runs from the sternum to the pubic bone. So as I draw it in, I create that contraction up the midline of the body in front. And I give the body a sense of weightlessness. Right? I also can hug the sides of the body in a little bit, which uh, activates the transversus abdominis, which is the uh, abdominal muscle that runs around the body like a big sash, if you're wearing a big sash around your waist. And so those two things um, counteract the weight of the abdominal organs as you lean forward. Right, You're already pressing away from the floor. You're hugging your elbows in. Now you pull the belly button in towards the spine activating rectus abdominis, you're good there. So now the next thing you need to do is cue people to do something with um, the position of the head as they lean forward. Because even though all of these other things are happening, which are good, if they don't do something with head positioning, they're going to fall on their head for the most part. So the obvious thing to do is to cue them to lift the head a little bit. 
So just like as if someone were coming into low push-up and we're just letting their head drop down, the weight of the head, 10 to 12 pounds, is going to pull them down towards the ground. If they lift the head slightly, it'll avoid that. And the other thing that's different when you look at low push-up versus crow, low push-up is a very long pose. In crow, it's such a short, condensed kind of scrunched in posture that the head and the pelvis are really close together. So if I dip my chin down a little bit in crow, because my pelvis is right there, it's gonna be a lot easier for me to fall forward because the effect on the overall person is the weight of the head is heavier uh, plus gravity, I'm working against gravity, than the pelvis. So if I lift the head a little bit, I counteract the effect of the weight of the pelvis and I can find that balance. So those are all key actions, right? And I also went into some of the uh, muscles involved, right? In terms of um, joints, joints in action, I want you to think about, right? So here, the shoulders are in a little bit of external rotation because we don't want people to hunch as they lean forward. If they hunch, they're going to internally rotate. They're going to internally rotate. If they turn out a little bit, that external rotation, just like in low push-up, just like in plank, will really help them keep that kind of stretch across the pectoralis major, pectoralis minor, subscapularis, coracobrachialis. It'll start to lengthen those muscles. And I guess to a certain extent, I, I wouldn't cue this, but I think the hugging the elbows in, uh, using serratus anterior will um, balance out and that action and that muscle will work almost as an antagonist to the internal rotators. Okay, modifications, right? So this goes back to what I mentioned before about really teaching the pose. So of course, there are gonna be people who are gonna be concerned, they can't do it, how do I do it? So there's a couple different things that you can try. Instead of having them kind of stick the landing, why not make it more of a dynamic movement? So think about as you sit in a rocking chair and you rock back and forth, that same kind of thing. So rather than teaching it in a way where you're working them up to stick the landing, why not teach it in a way where they're rocking back and forth? And through that dynamic movement back and forth, they can play with the actions, press down, hug the elbows in, draw the belly button in, lift the chin a little bit, and they get an opportunity to go between feet on the ground, feet up, feet on the ground, feet up, you know, and that dynamic movement back and forth can allow them to find the right balance to those variables until they can do the pose with their feet off the ground. The other thing, of course, is not to take the feet off the ground. Like this is a perfect modification. Don't lift your feet. <laughs> it's not a balance then. What you're really doing there is you're teaching them the alignment. You're teaching them the actions. They can do the actions without ever needing to lift their feet off the floor. Okay? So those are two. There are others. Let's just stick with those two. Now, let me also say, you never want to badger people to do something. You never want to say things. And again, I should never say never, but I would not recommend. And the point of what I'm saying regarding teach the pose does not mean that you say to people like, oh, why aren't you doing this? Or come on, try it. All I'm saying is offer, teach it and offer other ways, offer modifications. And 
you'll be amazed just in that you're going to encourage more people to do it. Okay, so let's go on to the next one. Let's look at shoulder stand. So um, primary action of shoulder stand, it is an inversion. So the feet are higher than the heart. Gravity is working to reverse the flow of circulation as well as has effects on the lymphatic system. You can pretty much think of anything that involves um, liquid <laughs> circulation, uh, whether it's uh, things from the endocrine system or the circulatory system will be affected by this pose. There are a lot of different benefits to shoulder stand from a physiological standpoint. You know, generally speaking, when, when we teach classes, we talk to people about the benefits of getting off their feet, reversing the flow of circulation, helping the heart by allowing the blood to return to the heart in a natural way. It also is a good way if people are doing strenuous things on their feet, if they have jobs where they're on their feet, or if they are, let's say, running a lot, for exercise, it's good to kind of get up, uh, get the feet up above the head to reverse the flow of lymph and lactic acid and other things in the body. In terms of key actions, so when I said earlier this concern around people flinging themselves in the pose, this is definitely a concern that I always have about this. So the way that I've come to teaching this pose is I literally say, and this is again, nothing groundbreaking. <laughs> uh, sometimes, you know, the, the, the answer is right there. I literally say before I teach it, do not go into this pose until I walk you through it because I want you to do it safely. I'm going to show you a way to get into it that will make it safe. Now, I might not say it exactly like that, but I basically say, please wait for me. I'm going to break it down into digestible chunks of alignment and action. Let's do it together. You know, so there, there are a bunch of different ways to say it, but I think the basic gist is you're enlisting the support of the class to stay with you. You're, you don't want to scare them, but you're basically saying, hey, I want to teach you this pose. I'd love to show you a way to get into it that is safe and let's do it together rather than having you jump up into the posture on your own. Now that's not gonna hold back everybody, but I think that's a good, um, just gentle suggestion that they hold back before flinging up. So before you say, let's do shoulder stand, you can say that little, or something along those lines, preface. So uh, key actions of shoulder stand. The way I like to teach it is I like to have people, I, I think about in the sequence when I get them to bridge, that's usually the time when I make a decision about if I'm gonna teach shoulder stand because there are actions in bridge that are gonna mimic actions they need to use in shoulder stand. So in bridge, as they are pressing away from the ground with their shoulders in extension and external rotation, uh, I start to talk to them about, notice the foundation that you have here in bridge is the contribution of more than just your feet. It's also your shoulders. It's also your upper arms pressing away from the floor. I then have them in bridge, take one leg up to the sky and press up firmly flexing the foot. I talk to them then about notice how when you press up through the leg while pressing off of the foundation of your shoulders and your arms, how that lifts the weight of the body up 
right? The effort is now moving up rather than sinking down into the neck and the shoulders. I then have them switch sides, kick the other leg up to the sky, repeat the same cues to reinforce the actions. Then after we do more bridge and wheel, maybe a couple of other things, then I teach shoulder stand, I give my little preface, and then I call back to what I talked about in bridge. So they can start to see nothing, and there really is, there are not a lot of things in yoga practice that we do in isolation. So many things build on the anatomy and the somatics, you know, kind of sensory sensations, um, the, the body intelligence, the muscle memory that comes from other things we do. So when they come into, when I tell them we're going to do shoulder stand, I give them my little preface. I also call them back to the cues I gave them in bridge. And I say, hey, remember when we were doing bridge and I had you notice pressing off the shoulders and the arms. I had you do it one leg up at a time, pressing up. We're going to use those same actions here. So they're on their back. They hug their knees into their chest. And I then say, okay, from the knees hugged into the chest, you're curled up like a ball. I want you to think about, could you get your hips over your shoulders? Could you get your hips over your shoulders? Because that's ideally how you want to be. You want to be able to hike your hips up and back to the point where your hips are aligned over your shoulders. Now, you may not get there exactly, but that's where you're headed. So keep your belly button drawn in, bring your hands to your back, hike your hips up, and then work to get your elbows in and your hips over your shoulders. So I give them a couple of seconds to get there. Then I remind them to hug their elbows in. So once again, right, we're using serratus anterior, we're not using upper traps and levator scapula. And I have them press one leg up, just like we did in bridge. I then have them press the other leg up. And then from there, I watch them to see, are they letting the weight of the pelvis rest on the hands? Are the legs tilted back or are they more straight to the sky? I then ask them to feel if they feel a lot of weight in their hands, right? So these are just all you know, reminders to them that they want to get the weight up. They don't want the weight to sink. It's very much like down dog. They don't want the weight to sink into their hands. They want to get the weight up and back, right? So, you know, again, that's down dog is an inversion to a certain extent. The head is lower than the heart. The legs are not in the air, but the same dynamic applies. So all those things together, can get them up into shoulder stand. And then you can take them from shoulder stand into plow, uh, into deaf man's pose. And then I bring them down into a bridge prep and just have them rest there in knock need pose uh, or just there. So that's your shoulder stand for you. Now <clears throat> I'm gonna make uh, just a little edit here and jump right ahead. Um, just for timing's sake, to, to uh, flip dog. And I want you to think about flip dog, um, or let me just suggest, 
uh, flip dog as a variation of wheel. And wheel as a posture that a lot of people feel challenged around. And just think about flip dog from a biomechanical standpoint and, um, and some of what flip dog can offer your students that is a little more adaptable in a way than wheel. And this has to do with the fact that one of the hands is off the floor. And so as soon as we can release some of the kind of locked down positioning of wheel, we can give people a little more freedom in the area of tight joints, namely shoulders and hips, right? So in wheel and flip dog, we need good flexibility in the hip flexors because the hips are in bilateral extension. And we need good strength in the shoulders, but also good um, flexibility in the internal rotators because the shoulders are in external rotation. So, and then there's also the element of it's a little scary to flip your dog because you're coming at it from down dog. And so that can be a little frightening for people. But I think it is if you present it in a way uh, where it is a precursor to wheel and a way to help people get the sensation of being in wheel without as much resistance in a way, because the one hand is off the ground. I think then you can kind of make the case for how flip dog can actually be a really good pose for people to try. So as you have them in down dog and they lift their leg up to the sky and they bend that upper leg. So let's say we lift the right leg, we bend the upper knee, have them begin to lean more. So I'm actually gonna do this in my head. Have them lean more, right leg, lean more to the left, right? So I'm in down dog, I lift the right leg, I bend the upper knee, I'm leaning over to my left. So I'm letting all my weight, so cueing them to let the weight fall into the left side. And then have them, cue them to flip and set both feet flat on the ground while the one hand, the right hand, hangs in the air. A modification right away is to have them drop their seat. So if they are concerned about being in a wheel-like flip, just have them drop their seat right away, adjust their feet to face back, and then press their hips up to the sky. Or once they flip, they can just stay how they land, but cue them to direct their feet towards the back of the room. We wanna mimic the alignment of wheel. So we don't want, I'm not teaching any variations here like wild thing, I'm talking traditional flip dog, <clears throat> where the feet would be parallel, where the heels would generally be under the knees or a little bit uh, in front of the knees. You wouldn't want the heels behind the knees because then the knees will extend out over the heels and it'll be really hard for them to press up. So here, muscularly, they're using gluteus maximus and hamstrings to press the hips up into, uh, into extension, right? They're stretching hip flexors like psoas and rectus femoris, part of the quadriceps, 
um, sartorius, which is an internal rotator, but also a hip flexor. So anything in the front line of the body in the, in the front chain <clears throat> is lengthening, both in terms of lower body and upper body. Anything in the back body is strengthening. So glute max, hamstrings, uh, rhomboids, which adduct the shoulder blades, draw the shoulder blades towards the spine. External rotators like teres minor and infraspinatus, part of the rotator cuff, right? So all of this uh, uh, muscular action-wise is happening. So again, modification, drop the seat and then pop back up. Otherwise, they're flipped over. Important that they have the shoulders over the wrists. So you could have them glance down and move back, right? Take their belly button up and shift their weight back a bit so that their lower shoulder is over their wrist, less strain on the shoulder joint when they have that stacking, less strain on the wrist, which is the lowest part of the kinetic chain, when the shoulder is stacked on top. Um, they could also lift their heels, which gives them even more freedom. Watch them for feet turnout. So feet turnout in this is a sign that their gluteus maximus uh, is too activated in that plane. Glute max's primary action is hip extension, but it also has a secondary action of external rotation. This is why when many people go into wheel, they turn the feet out. And so to get them out of that, your cue is to have them turn the feet in. This is the genesis for the block between the thighs uh, cue. Um, at least in my mind it is. I don't know if people know that that's the genesis of it when they ask people to put a block between the thighs, but that anatomically is the, is the rationale behind it. So you could cue them to turn the feet straight as well. So that gives you a sense of, of that. So, you know, just to kind of think about, we talked about modifications for this one, obviously offering it encouraging people who do not feel comfortable to stay as they are, then teaching, right? Teaching it, offering the modification of dropping the seat and then popping back up. Um, you can also offer to people, it's a little harder to mix in because there's a lot going on, to have them sit on the ground and, uh, and then turn the hands inward, both hands, and do it uh, with both hands down. And that's an idea. That's, uh, it's kind of a reverse tabletop. Again, if you can fit that in, in terms of the cues you're giving, that's an option as well. And, you know, things to look for from an anatomy challenges perspective, I talked about the feet turning out, the lower shoulder not being over the wrist, that's something you'd want to keep uh, aware of. And then just that speaking to mind, body, and spirit, that encouraging them to open the heart, the reminder that this is a great prep for wheel. If you're feeling challenged to come into wheel, this is a great, this is great training ground for that pose. So it's just kind of showing them the path because many students think of postures in isolation. They don't think of all the connections between the postures and how so much of what they're already doing is building the intelligence in the body to do these other things. And this can be a huge relief for students and a way to really help them connect the dots on a physical level and overcome some of the barriers they may have to coming into some of these poses because they're just afraid they can't do it. You know, I will never forget one time I was teaching a class and this person started practicing and I could tell right away that they were new. And when it got to the backbending part, 
you know, in my head, I thought it's going to be challenging for this person to do wheel and they just popped right into it. So honestly, people don't even know many times the strength and just the innate sense they have in their body to do a lot of these poses. And with your guidance and your ability to help them see the links between these postures on the physical side, the alignment side, the action side, all those things we talked about at the beginning that are the different kinds of cues you can give, you're really going to dispel for them a lot of the fear that they have around approaching some of these poses that um, are kind of known as a little bit more challenging. All right. So... We have come to the end of this podcast. So I want to remind you uh, that if you uh, have not been added to my VIP mailing list, definitely do that in the next day or so. I know you could be listening to this podcast months from now, in which case it won't apply. But if you are listening shortly after it's been posted, go ahead and jump on board. And also, if you do listen to this podcast um, even during the week of uh, the 15th or the 22nd, you know, those are the two weeks where first the video series is going to be released. And then the following week, which is the week of the 22nd, I'm going to be releasing a really big surprise launch. And I, you know, if you're listening to these podcasts with me and you're just right on board, you're thinking, man, this anatomy stuff, I'm really starting to get it. I really recognize that I need to fill in uh, a learning gap that I have around anatomy. I promise you <laughs> what I'm going to be launching uh, that following week is going to really, really take your learning capacity to the next level. So you don't want to miss out on that. All you need to do is join the mailing list to get on that list. Just grab a free piece of content on my website. You can also look at the show notes and there'll be a registration page you can click for the video series. So I want to thank you so much for listening today and please comment wherever you're listening, please add a comment. I'd love to hear from you. I thank those of you who have already sent me personal emails or who have commented on social media. I've read some of your reviews on the show in the past. I really, really thank you for taking a couple moments to share those thoughts with me. It really gives me joy to know that you're listening and to hear that this content is interesting to you. So have a wonderful rest of your day and I'll see you next time on the Barebone Yoga Podcast Conversations for Yoga Teachers. Namaste.